Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-330 of the Run Run Live podcast. And this week I have a chat with Matt about his experience recording the Marathon BQ audiobook for Audible. I haven't got the green light from Audible yet. I gotta check with them, see what they're up to. But the fact that they're still processing the finished product is probably a good sign because if they hate it, if they have issues with the audio production, they get right back to you. I was interested in chatting with Matt about what it was like to be on his side of the table recording my words and about the conversational storytelling medium that podcasting has become. Podcasts have become, or maybe they always were, sort of the glue in community building. And there's really not much of a leap between you and I talking right now and the shaman telling stories as the firelight dances on the Puebla walls in prehistory. It's a human thing. In section one, we're going to discuss how to come back from having the flu in the middle of your training cycle. In section two, we'll talk about the good and bad aspects of setting big, hairy goals. I raced the Phoenix Rock and Roll Marathon last Sunday. And as a storytelling experiment... I sort of journaled my thoughts the morning before the race, the day after the race, and then two days after the race. And I'm going to drop them in here to see if it gives you some insights into the runner's mind. May work, may fail miserably, we'll see. Morning of the race. It's 6 a.m. local time. I'm in a nice Renaissance hotel on East Adams Street, about six blocks from the starting line. The race starts at 7.50 for some odd reason. I'll leave here around eh, 6.30, 6.45 and jog over for my warm-up. It looks to be about a half a mile. When this podcast drops, we will know the results of this race. Right now, we do not. I stand once more staring into the abyss that is long-distance running. I've been suffering from taper madness for the better part of two weeks. I have been terrified of this race all week. My friends look at me and shake their heads. 
How can you be terrified of a race? Haven't you done this 50 times? Didn't you write a book about this? That doesn't keep my mind from running around in circles like a cage of rabid weasels. I sit here in the stench of menthol that rises from my old legs, and I am fine. The test is here, and the waiting is over. Now all that is left is a few hours of honest suffering. Status? I got in a few great weeks of speed training in the fall with some decent mileage. I broke out of that schedule in December to run some races. I switched to a couple weeks of long tempo and some decent core work to tune up for this race. I have no injuries and nothing is bothering me. On a scale of 1 to 10, I feel like I'm about a 7.5 in terms of fitness. I feel a bit heavy, but I've stayed off the scale. The gym at work flooded just days after it opened from the remodeling. Instead of step-up runs, I closed out my training with some shorter fartlek runs. In some of these, I saw signs of life. I tapered well, if not a bit too deeply, but I wanted to make sure my legs were fresh for this effort. I sit here this morning in this hotel with my wife gently snoring behind me, and it's almost time to go. I've got my old wine-soaked hokas, my short shorts, my Squanacook singlet, and a Boston Marathon hat. I'll carry a bottle of Yukan in one hand and some gels and Enduralites in the other. It's 46 degrees and clear. The road stretches out before me. It's time to step into the arena. Monday morning. The day after the race, a bed and breakfast outside Sedona, Arizona. My legs ache, my quads especially. I'm up early because of the time change and also because of the unsettling ache in my legs. I don't know if that's an honest ache from the effort in the race or my legs got pummeled from the awful form I betrayed in those last few miles. I had nothing yesterday, nothing. If I was my coach, I'd wonder about mental commitment and whether I was just failing to embrace the effort. But that wasn't it. It wasn't even close to the point where I would have to call on some deeper strength to tip the scales. I wasn't even close. I warmed up well. I fueled. I was slotted comfortably in corral number one. It was a small race for a city marathon. Like most of these rock and roll races, the masses run the half. We were out and running free right off the line. The course was wide city streets and no hassle with crowding at all. I fell into my race strategy and discipline right away. I was running within earshot of Eric, the 3.30 pacer. He was pushing a 7.55 pace that would give us a 90-second buffer for the high miles. I haven't downloaded the data yet, but it felt like a low to mid zone 3 effort. The weather was in the mid-40s, with a slight breeze as the sun came up. I wasn't working too hard, but I did notice the sweat dripping off from my hat around mile four. You have to pay attention to that in a desert race, because you can get dehydrated before you know it. I was sucking on my bottle of Yukan, and my energy was nice and level. At the 10K, I took a couple seconds to fish out an Enduralite salt pill to stay ahead of the electrolyte loss, another thing you have to watch in the desert. Mile 10 was a long, barely perceptible uphill pull, and I noticed my effort level going up a bit. 
I kept noticing my legs weren't feeling so great, especially my quads, and the little uphill had them protesting. I tried relaxing out my stride, but I couldn't figure out how to clear the fatigue. And that's what it was, fatigue, not cramps, fatigue. Like that feeling you get when you've done 20 weighted walking lunges and you have to do five more, that burning fatigue. Around 11 and a half miles, I knew my goal was not going to be met on this day. I thanked the pacer, wished everyone good luck, and tried to find a comfortable running pace. The rest of the race played out like so many bad marathons I have run. Slower and slower paces, more and longer walk breaks, your classic 15-minute positive split. And those last few miles hurt. My legs were cooked. I'm feeling it today. When you look around for things to blame, for excuses, you talk about the injuries or fueling or weather. For a mid-packer, all those things are five percenters. All those things might be worth five or ten minutes in your goal time. The only thing that really makes a difference in your racing is training. I don't think the volume and intensity of my training was lacking, but I think the consistency and timing was was off. I was all over the place with my training in December, and I raced too much. I feel guilty when I fail at these races. It's been such a long time since my last good race, 2011. That was over 15 marathons ago. I remember that day and the fact that it really wasn't that hard of an effort. It was coming off a decent winter of training, but nothing special. I had the world in my hands that day at Boston. It's so far away now, I wonder if that was really me. I wonder if that me even exists anymore. I wonder what the point is. I feel like a pretender. Maybe it's time to take up golf. Maybe this sport has taught me all it can. On my desk at home is a charity entry for the greatest marathon in the world. When I get home, I'll fill it out and I'll send it in without the qualification time. I'll join my friends for my 18th spring run-up to the great race. On April 18th, I'll be standing on Main Street in Hopkinton. I'll bring with me the best training cycle I am capable of. I'll lose the weight. I'll work the legs. I'll do exactly what my coach tells me. It's on to Boston. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Coming back from the flu. How much? How quickly? This time of year. People are in the midst of training campaigns for their spring races. For some of the advanced or intermediate plans, you may be already 8 to 10 weeks in by this point in the year, mid-January. This time of year also exposes people to the cold and flu season. Piled on top of all the other challenges people have in the dark months of winter is the chance of getting sick. The holidays, besides being joyous time of year for families and get-togethers, also presents lots of opportunity to spread plagues, not get enough sleep, and make poor nutritional choices. You may end up sick. I tend to not get sick if I'm training consistently. I'll get some mild cold symptoms every now and then, but they seem to come and go quickly and never really impact my training or my travel. 
Before I started training consistently, I used to get sick like clockwork. Right around the changing seasons, every fall and spring, I'd come down with a horrendous head cold that would take me out with two-week coughing and suffering binges. When I started running consistently, it just stopped happening. Something to do with stronger immune system? I don't know. I'll take it, but I don't know. I don't get sick, and when I do, it's mild, and it passes in a couple of nights. The best way to recover from a flu is not to get it in the first place. And the best way to do that this time of year is to pay attention and not let yourself get run down. I don't know about you, but I need to sleep more in the winter when the days get short. If you have a training schedule that is ramping up during the winter months, try to be proactive. Plan to get enough sleep. Your body is already stressed. Give it some extra help. Don't let yourself get run down. Nutrition is important health as well. Again, in the winter, we tend to get less fresh vegetables and fruits. Try to proactively have those four to five pieces of real whole fruit every day. The good news is that the citrus harvest is starting to come in this time of year. Make sure you're getting that good mix of leafy green vegetables. Big, warm vats of chili are lovely on a cold Sunday afternoon, but try to keep your healthy diet on an even keel. It's about what you eat as much or more than what you don't eat. What if you get sick anyhow? What if you have to stop your training for a week or two while you lie moaning and sweating and wishing you were dead? How do you come back from that? This is a great question. Getting sick is different than getting injured. With an injury, you may have to take time off, but your body is not getting a beating like it is when you're sick. I always tell people to build a couple weeks of slack into a training plan when backward scheduling from target race, and that gives you some time if life happens. You can still execute your training plan for the race. If you don't have that buffer, you have to figure out what to do next. If you're sick for two weeks, you don't just lose two weeks. You lose the two weeks of training and whatever time it takes you to recover back to that level of health and fitness you were before you got sick. And you're not going to be able to jump out of bed after a week or two and start where you left off. You're going to have to ease back into training. If you jump right back in where you left off, you'll either get injured or overtrained or sick again. So what's the magic formula? How do you ease back into it? Depending on how sick you were, some people use the rule of thumb that you need three days of recovery for every day that you were sick. I think it's simpler than that. I think you just have to start back into your training plan at 40 to 60% of the volume you were doing pre-sickness and see how you feel. Some of these flus will really beat the crap out of your body. You may be so weak that it will take weeks just to get back to feeling normal. On the other hand, you may bounce right back. It really depends on you and your machine and how it responded. Take the first week easy. No speed, no tempo runs. Do your base miles easy and start with 40 to 60% of the volume. That may translate into skipping days to recover or running 50% of the distance you normally would. The biggest question people usually have is what to do about the long run. You may have worked up to a good distance in your long run by this point in your training. The plan may have you doing some something longer going forward. And this is where I would drop back to 50 to 60% of the distance for a couple of weeks. The key here is to take note of how you feel in these first couple weeks. 
Ignore the first couple workouts because they're going to feel weird and sucky no matter what. Throw those data points out. Notice how you feel the next day. Notice how you recover. Notice your energy level on subsequent runs. This will give you the information, the feedback, the data you need to know to know where you are and how you should approach the rest of your cycle. If you had a training cycle that was scheduled to take you to your race without any slack, you're going to need to make adjustments in your expectations. Maybe you come up with a plan B on your pacing and your goal time. Maybe even skip the event or downgrade to a shorter distance. As much as you'd like to race, if you get sick and miss a big chunk of quality training in your cycle, you have to deal realistically with your ability to race. No one likes to get sick. No one likes to miss training when they have a race on the calendar. Do what you can do to stay healthy and avoid getting sick. Ease back into your training and evaluate what you lost and what you have. Reset your schedule and expectations appropriately. Try to learn from it and live to fight another day. And now for today's featured interview. Matt, how are you doing? This is Chris. Welcome. Give me your give me your two hundred words on who you are and what you do. Well, I'm uh, I'm Matthew McDonough. I run the Passers By podcast, and I also do some voice gigs. And Chris approached me a few months, a couple months ago, and said, "Hey, I want you to read the audiobook for Marathon BQ." And I was like, okay, I understand that completely, being an ex-runner myself. And um, we started talking, and he said uh, kind of what he wanted to happen. So next thing you know, I'm sending him over audio files, and we're Dropboxing, and we're email conferencing. And uh, I think just uh, just after Christmas, we finished up on the final, 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 final of Marathon BQ Plan. Yeah, I mean... I always guess wrong when I try to remember these things, but it seems to me like it was about a month's worth of work. Yeah, it was about a month um, working part-time, you know, after I'd get home at night and make sure the kid was down for bed. And then I'd read a chapter or two and I'd edit it and I'd listen back. But, you know, if you're listening to it, you're not always going to catch everything. So that's why I set it up with quality control. Yeah, it's very similar to copy editing when you're reading something that you've written yourself. Your brain processes it to be what you think it is, not what it is. Oh, yeah. I've Half the words you said that I flubbed, I was like, oh, crap, I didn't even know that I stuttered. <laughs> I didn't want to be too picky, you know, because uh, uh, I know I know it's, uh, it's tough for people to be picking on you like that. It was fine. No offense to any of my other clients, but you were probably the easiest to deal with because you knew exactly what you wanted. You didn't have like, a, well, it's kind of like this. You had, you know, this is what I want. This is the way I want it read. And... Yeah. You know, you're doing great with what you're doing. Here's a couple tweaks instead of, oh, well, could you do it? And then some sort of vague direction. Like as a director, you did very well. Yeah. So the that's the, the challenge a lot of times when you, you're trying to farm out work for projects is you don't really know what you want a lot of times. So that makes it really difficult for the person performing the work because they're, they're, they're like, just tell me what to do. Right. And uh, if you don't have it, it's difficult. But in this case, I had the finished material. Um, and it was all buttoned down. There was no no give and take at all. I was going to say there's so, there's no deviating on an audiobook. It's it's pretty much set in stone. Yep. So I'm I'm pretty proud of this interaction because usually I'm the kind of guy who likes to do everything himself. And okay. uh, so 
being able to farm this off to you and have it actually end successfully. Well, we don't know if it ended successfully yet. We'll see what uh, Audible comes up with, right? Yeah, I'm assuming it'll sail through. But uh, we were able to do this successfully without me uh, jumping in and trying to take over. So that's good. I think it's a learning experience for me, and it gives me hope for the future that I can offload some of the things that I'm that I'm working on without uh, without them failing and without it uh, causing too much turmoil in, in the in the universe. So you read through this book. Just uh, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this, but what did you think? I mean, I you know I say I wrote it, but I want I don't want to say that because this one just sort of like popped into my mind because this is the sort of stuff I've been thinking about for the last 18 years. You know, these are the stories I tell when I'm out running with somebody. And I kid you not, this book wrote itself in like 20 days, right? Because it already existed. It just needed to get out of my head. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading it, I was really, really impressed with the amount of time. You say it was written in 20 days, but I don't think it really was because you put all the years of, you know, feet on the road. You put all the years of testing this and that. I mean, that all goes into the writing of the book as well. You just, I mean, the 20 days may have been what took you to put the words on paper, but you can tell that through reading the book, there's years and years of experience behind every word. And you, at the end, you end up being like, yeah, I, I trust this. I'm okay with this. This is something that I would like to do. Not myself, because my fitness level is about that of a 45-year-old obese man, but... Did you feel at all like uh, feel a little something stirring in your in your felt, loins to get up yeah, off the couch and go running? Felt a little bit of, you know, maybe I should go out and get some running shoes or maybe I should go out and figure out a nice four mile route. Yeah, it's that time of year, right? Everybody's doing that. Oh, not in Michigan. Not right now. Holy cow. Yeah, it's kind of cold, right? It, it dipped down today for the first time since uh, early December. It dipped down hard. It was one of those days where you, you get out to pump gas and your fingers hurt. Yeah, and things just randomly start to not work when it gets that cold. Oh, yeah. Like cars and lights and plumbing. Knees. Yeah, yep. But, uh, yeah, so it's, that was kind of fun. I appreciate the quality um, of your effort. I know it's it's hard because I I actually did record those other two books that I wrote into audio, and it takes a lot of time because you got to record them, you got to edit them, you, know, you got to clean them up and all that stuff. It just takes a lot of time. I came up with a process of editing while I was talking that um, it allowed for pretty much seamless editing as I was talking. Say I flubbed up on a word, I would pause the recording right there, select it, delete it. And as I'm selecting and deleting, I'm repeating the words in the same cadence and same intonation, kind of like putting your brain on repeat for the last five seconds, and then I would jump right back into the recording. So it sounded seamless, but sometimes it was sentence by sentence. Sometimes it was half a sentence by half a sentence. I just, And then other days it was just paragraph or page by page, just able to do it in a single take. So that's a, a difference. When I record, you know, because I, I record every, you know, every podcast as well, I script them all, actually, and, and record the script. I actually uh, do them all in one take and then go back and edit. And sometimes that doesn't work at all because you get to a point where it's too late and you can't, <laughs> you can only make it so good, right? You only got oh, so yeah. much to work with. Yeah. So what's the hardest part of recording somebody else's words? I find for me the hardest part would be just getting it down, just finding the time for me. 
finding the time, you know, with the three-year-old and with the wife and with, you know, just family craziness happening. And with my own podcast, just finding the time for it was for me. But, you know, I found time on weekends and you find time in the evening. If you make it kind of a ritual, like in the BQ plan, you say is, you know, you make it part of your day. It's something that has to be done. Otherwise, this won't happen. You seem to do a pretty good job of picking up my tone and my flow. You know, everybody, you can hear the tone in, in the way different people write, almost like the music behind the words. And you you seem to have a pretty good ear for that, reading my words and, and coming back with the same tone, the same, same you know, the same sort of um, cadence and flow as the written word. So I guess that's your voice, right? So when you write something, I write something, you write something, everybody has a unique voice. And you seem to do a pretty good job of finding the voice. How did you tease that out of the words? I think it was there. On a, no, no, like, back padding and whatnot, as much, you know, butt kissing that I can do. I really, I really think it was in the words. All I did was read them because I can sit there and you can read something for five different ways. That's yeah. part of, you know, being versatile and being able to do it correctly. It's just for some reason, the way I would read it, that's I mean, the way it's written is exactly the way it should be read. And that's what I came up with through working with the book. I found it was very easy to read, very easy to understand. It has a good voice in itself and it it just flows very well. There's not a whole lot of parts where you can get stumbled up on. Yeah, and so I had an editor uh, this round when I put this book together. I had an editor, and she helped me strip out some of my uh, my more Nabokovian sentences that I tend to get uh, the tongue twisters. So yeah, great team effort, loving it. So so you do the uh, the storytelling podcast, the uh, Password yep. by Pod, and it's interesting because I I talk about storytelling a lot, and I think in the sort of the cultural marketing sales business zeitgeist, storytelling is making a resurgence as an important thing. And oh yeah, I would agree with that totally. And why is storytelling important? I find storytelling to be extremely important at this point in time because we're all so concerned with reality TV and we're all so concerned with making sure that, you know, we're super famous and all this other stuff. But there's only so many people that can be famous and everybody's only listening to like these 12 or 13 people. Like for me, who honestly gives a damn what Kanye or Kim has to say? You know, the clerk behind the counter at 7-Eleven could have a lot more stories and a lot more interesting stories than, oh, I'm not sure what kind of lipstick I wanted to wear to this event. Like, that doesn't matter. That's bullcrap. Getting out there and listening to normal people and their normal stories, it may not be electrifying or, you know, in a bikini and standing on a sandy beach, but it's real. You know, it's visceral. It's a story. It's something that isn't manufactured. It's organic. And it's something that a producer hasn't had its hands on. It comes straight out of the mouth and into your ears. It's the most raw form of entertainment. And it's, you know, it's pretty much ingrained in our DNA as human beings. That's how we communicate, you know, myth and lore and all the important means of passing information from one generation to another or making sure that there's some sort of moral compass for a society is done so through storytelling. So I got a book for you. You can get this book probably for a dime in the uh, in the flea market. It's called Work by uh, Studs Terkel. He's an old okay. radical from the from the 50s, and uh, he sat down and he just had 
everyday Americans in the 1950s tell him their stories, and he recorded them. It's like an 800-page book. It's called Work. That's great. You'll like that. But the thing is, if you listen to stories from the 1950s or from 2,000 years ago, like you said, it's a basic human thing. And you'll find the same themes and good stories over and over again, right? And oh, I yeah. think one of the marketing guys boiled it down. And he said there's only, I forget what the, what the number was, but it was like either six or eight story forms in the entire world. What does a good story do for the audience? What does it give them? For the audience, a good story brings either a lesson or a thought or just relatability. So you can learn something from somebody telling you a story. It can lead you on a thought or a meditation, you know, something that you need to learn about yourself, or it can lead you on relatability where you can say, yes, I've, I've felt that before, or yes, I've experienced that before, or yeah, I was there when that happened as well. Right. And I think that's what, if I'm writing a story or telling a story, I try to do it in such a way that that person changes place with me in the story that I'm telling, that they're in the story, they're feeling it, they're smelling it, they're seeing it, because then the story becomes a mirror for them to see themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what does storytelling do for the storyteller? I find that a lot of what I see is that they're happy to tell their story and then to be the entertainer or to be the center of attention because the people that I have tell stories aren't typically the center of attention. I've got a couple bands coming on that I've planned out and I have a couple bloggers, but when they go to work every day, they're not going to be, you know, Mr. Boss Man. They're, they're just normal people telling their normal everyday stories. And for that one half hour, for that moment, I find that it's important. The narrative is on them at that point, and everybody else is captive and listening. So for the storyteller, it's a bit like um, authenticity. I mean, assuming you're not, uh, you know, telling a farce, but even that's fun, too. You know, it's a, it's a slice of authenticity, and, and that authenticity resonates with the audience. And that's the germ of why reality TV resonates with people, right? Again, it's it, most of it's made up, but where it does resonate, it's because it reflects something within us, right? It's a mirror on us, on the audience. Right. So what's, um, give, me, uh, give me an example of a really good storytelling situation where the audience and the storyteller and everybody, you know, when they left the room and the story was over, it was just sort of a wow moment for you. For me, the one story that I've recorded and that really blew me away and that received a lot was when my friend, who I had known since high school, sat down with me now when I'm 28 and told me about the experience when he returned from Afghanistan in 2008 and right. his struggle with everything that happened post-return, having to come to terms with just being alive at that point. And, you know, we left... I mean, we took our headphones off and we sat down afterwards and it was just like, it was heavy, but it was relieving at the same time. You know, being able to hear these things from my friend, it was heartbreaking to hear it, but it was also, you could see the relief on his face as he's letting it out and as he's telling the story. Yeah, so it's therapeutic in some way for him as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's it was, great. It was wonderful. No offense again to anybody that I've recorded a story with. Yeah, and it was culturally relevant, too, 
with yeah. uh, with a lot, a lot of the stuff he was trying to do and the self-destructive behavior he went through. I listened to that. Um, that was fairly recently. That was very powerful. Yeah, and and it was nice because it had a conclusion. You know, where he had he had you know we're all on a never-ending journey, but he had reached a point where he sort of got his arms around it. So it was nice. It had a it had the the three-part story form. You know, where he did the exposition the challenge and then the resolution. So it was, it was nice and tidy for us listeners as well. Oh yeah. And that second act is, I mean, imagine putting yourself in those shoes of even the listener, you know, listening to this guy who you guys used to fool around in high school and joke and all this other crap. And then you hear this fall out of his mouth and you've never heard it before. You had no idea. I had no idea any of the stuff that he was talking about was happening. So to hear that and to hear it fall out of his mouth, know that at that moment it was solidified. I couldn't go back. And, I, you know, we can't take that back. It was it was real powerful. And that's that's the point. That's why I do what I do is, you know, to hear the stories from, from people that they normally wouldn't tell. Yeah. And but it's just a like we said, it's a very basic form of human interaction that benefits the listener and the storyteller. So in that case, it you know benefits your friend and you as a bit of therapy, right? Um, oh yeah. And I think and I think that's something we're missing. Like you said, we're missing that in the world because the online stuff, the story you're telling, typically isn't the right story, and it's not in person. You don't have that outlet, right? You don't have that coming together of two souls or multiple souls. Yeah, that's for sure. The ability to be able to tell a good story is a gift. You know, and certain people have it naturally, but it's something you can develop as well. Really, the point that we're making here is that as long as you have that authentic, connected interaction, then, it, you know, the story form itself will kind of take care of itself. You don't have to have, you know, the moth. You don't have to be this American life of storytelling. You yourself are the most important part of the story. You're the narrator. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you can be great and you can be amazing at storytelling, but, you know, just the fact that you're sharing a story, that's the important part. You know, how you tell it or how long it is or the quality that you believe it is. You know, that doesn't it doesn't really matter. The fact is that it's you, a human, telling a story as a storyteller and you sharing your experience with another human being, you know, in the most primal sense of our communication. Yeah. And you shouldn't you shouldn't let yourself pass from this earth with those stories still inside you. Find a way to tell them. Isn't it the uh, the quote that when an old person dies, a library is destroyed or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. All right, man. So I'm going to have to move you towards the exit here. But what have you learned? You know, what are the top, let's say, three things you've learned from, you know, your podcasting experience? I've learned patience. I have learned a lot of patience because, you know, you can run around and run around and try and get guests and try and get people to come on and tell their stories. But really, if you just wait, people that want to tell their stories will come to you. You can keep pushing and pressuring on certain guests, but the most important part is that the people that want to be told get hurt. And do you find that everybody has a story? Uh, Everybody does. It's just if they're willing or if they're ready. Not so much willing, it's ready. Are they ready to tell their story yet? Yeah. And I learned so much about audio. I never knew that there was so much to learn about audio and uh, just so many YouTube tutorials and trips to the electronics store or browsing around online for specs 
you learn so much. I mean, you can put out a decent one for a decent amount of money, or you can, you know, put some money in and get some equipment that you'll be really happy with for a couple of years. That's good. Learning is what uh, keeps life interesting, right? Oh, for sure. Plus, it gives you a little adventure, some more stories to tell. So, well, all right, I'm, Matt, I'm, I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for right, uh, right. taking the time. And I, I'll reciprocate. Anybody who's ever run with me knows that I never shut up, right? So those other two books that I uh, shared with you that I wrote before, those are all my stories, or a lot of my stories. I'm looking forward to reading those. All right, man. Thanks for the time. All right. Take it easy. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The power and peril of setting big goals, the right way and the wrong way. What's your big hairy goal? That's what we hear. The current culture is one of setting extreme goals that drive us to extreme execution and success. The implied logic is that unless your goals are outsized, you're selling yourself short. Is that really the case? Is there a peril to setting unreasonable goals? Well, the answer is yes, there is a peril in routinely setting unreasonable goals. But the answer is also yes, there is power in setting big goals. So first, let's talk about the peril. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're in sales. For the last five years, you have had a $1 million sales quota. You've met or exceeded that quota more than half the time. This year, you get a new manager who believes in setting big goals. Your new manager says your quota is now $2 million. You're a professional. You should rise to the challenge, right? Shouldn't the $2 million goal be twice as challenging, twice as motivating as the $1 million goal? Even if you only achieve 80% of the new $2 million goal, you've made the corporation an extra $600,000. That's good, right? Well, the problem with that logic is that it's entirely arbitrary. What makes us think $2 million is any more achievable or possible than $1 million? What's going to happen? At the end of the year, when you work your tail off and bring in $1.6 million, everybody is happy. But you didn't make your goal. It's dishonest. You've created a culture where everyone knows the goals are BS and failure becomes excusable, accepted, and finally expected. Does that sound like a culture that will be best in class? Do you really want to burn in an expectation of failure? There is a way this could work. If the $2 million goal had some sort of specificity in the way it was set, if you work through the hows and the whens, if you ask the question in a different way, what would we need to do to make a $2 million quota? If the answer is work harder, then you need to rethink your goals or your employment policies. The answer will have to do with resource and market constraints and investments to relieve them so that you can get to the goal. The point is that if the $2 million goal had some sort of logical plan to support it that you could buy into, then, yeah, it might be a reasonable big goal, if that makes sense. What's a personal example? Maybe you've given yourself a stretch goal of running a marathon or losing 80 pounds. It's the same dynamic. 
unless that goal has some specificity on how you're going to get there, it is setting you up to fail. You risk getting caught up in that same cycle of setting goals, achieving some or part of that goal, and then having to set another goal, etc. It's the same culture of expecting to fail, and it can become poisonous to your growth. If you go into everything by setting an unrealistic goal with no supporting specificity, you start believing that the goal doesn't mean anything. In reality, you're designing your life with the expectation of failure. That doesn't seem very inviting, does it? So what makes a goal unrealistic? It's not the size of the goal. What makes the goal unrealistic is when you have no specific way or plan to get there. Trying hard is great. Working hard is necessary. But if the goal is unreasonable, you are playing a rigged game. The deck is stacked against you. The worst scenario is when you start to wrap your self-worth around an unrealistic goal. Now you've set yourself up to fail and invested yourself emotionally. When you do fail, it causes a crisis of faith. That's a destructive scenario. The tricky balance is to be emotionally committed enough to own the goal and the results, but to also retain enough emotional detachment to know that this goal is just another step in your life learning. To be all in, to burn your boats, but at the same time have a third-party perspective. And that's, by the way, one of the good ways a coach can help, whether personally or in business. They can give you that third-party perspective while you give it everything you have to achieve the goal. One baseline driver when you set your goals is your why. If you don't care about your goal, setting a bigger goal typically won't make you care more about it. That's like the old joke, we lose money on the individual sales, but we make it up in volume. The math doesn't work. On the positive side, big hairy goals can change your life. How does that work? What's that dynamic? The value in a bigger goal is that you can't achieve it with your existing tools and existing effort levels. The bigger goal forces you to grow by forcing you to find a different set of resources. When I set a goal of qualifying for Boston, it forced me to figure out how to take 40 minutes off my finishing time. This led me to increase the volume and intensity of my training to a level I never thought possible. It broke my frame of reference and taught me new skills. In this way, the big goal changed my life in a way that an incremental goal could not. But if I had tried to qualify for Boston by non-specifically trying harder with the same training techniques I was using, I would have failed. If I didn't truly care about the goal, if I hadn't internalized it, if it wasn't important to me, then I would not have risen to that training level and I would have failed. That's the power of a big goal done right. The big goal in itself is neither reasonable nor unreasonable. Does it motivate you to ask better questions and learn things? Does it set you on fire that you freely make the resource investments that the big goal achievement requires? If it doesn't, then don't bother. The big goal in itself does nothing. If you constantly set goals and miss them, you create an attitude that accepts and expects failure. When you consider the big goal 
ask better questions. What would it take to make this possible? Then commit, burn your boats, and go for it. But always hold back a little of yourself in detachment so you don't go crazy. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, apparently you have failed on your time goal, but you have successfully made it to the end of episode 4-330 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'm going to drop one more journal entry on you, and we'll head for the exits. I'm still looking for contributions from my Team Hoyt campaign for Boston 2016. Buddy, if you can spare a dime. Registration for the Groton Road Race is open April 24th, 2016. Come up and say hi. It's our 25th anniversary. Wednesday morning, Navajo Casino. Sitting in the coffee cafe, listening to Dire Straits and waiting for the sun and my wife to get up. On a call this morning, I was asked about the race. When did you know? How did it go down? How are you feeling now? What are your plans now? I'm quite at peace with my race, and in general. That was somewhere around my 51st marathon. I would guess 75 to 80% of them have gone like this, where I went in wondering what my fitness was, and I found out that it wasn't what I thought. It's a bit of a bell curve when you get enough races under your belt, and I mean races, not the meandering parades that are becoming more and more the norm. For me, a race means that I'm going to run my best time on that day with the fitness I have. If I'm racing, I'm racing for time. And the measuring stick I use is the Boston Qualification Standard. It doesn't mean completing the 26.2 miles for the sake of a party and a pat on the back. But that's, that's a whole other conversation. My point is, when you're racing... A small percent of the time, you're going to show up and have a great day. On those days, it comes easily, and you run above and beyond your training. Another small percent of the time, you'll get the truly awful performance, where you pull a muscle or have a cramp, and the whole thing collapses into an ugly death march to the finish. On these days, you run below the capabilities of your training. For the majority of my races, it has just been work. Where the work starts early and the weight of the effort wears you down, it's not your day. You slow down and take the disappointment because it's what you have on that day. You end up asking those questions and trying to figure out what went wrong. Like your performances, the majority of the fault lies not in the long tail items of weather, sleep, nutrition, or any of the other thousands of influencers on performance, the majority of your race performance is due to your training. Your training has the largest influence on how you perform that day. And thus, my training was bad. Not bad in the sense that I didn't get enough volume or intensity. Bad in the sense that my timing was poor. I raced too much. I wasn't consistent or focused. And I didn't peak well. And I wasted all those miles. So how do I feel? What do I do next? I was emotionally wrapped up in this race because I've been chasing this time for five years now, and it's, it's starting to weigh on me. I also like to make races emotionally important to me because I find that urgency helps me to focus my energy. It helps me to care deeply about the results. It helps to take that attitude into a race. It makes me less likely to give up. I do understand it's just a race. I do understand that 
it is not a judgment on me as a person, and I don't take it personally. One race doesn't weigh on my self-worth. Emotionally, in my animal brain, I get the disappointment, frustration, and anger, but detached in my big brain, I see it not as failure, but at another data point from which to learn and improve. And that being said, I want to make promises that I can keep. It's always a challenging game in life to dangle that carrot far enough in front of you that you have to stretch and grow to reach it, but not too far in front that you create a wash and rinse cycle of false expectations and failure. So we're on to Boston. Tuesday morning, I got up early to watch the sun rise over the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It was spectacular, really something. I decided at least I needed to run a little bit of the trail down into the canyon. The Bright Angel trailhead was right behind our cabin. It was 18 degrees out, which wasn't what I expected. I put on every shirt I had, five shirts under the finisher's jacket from the race. And I had tossed my cloth gloves out during the race, so I had to wear my dress gloves. (laughs) The long switchbacks clinging to the cliff face were covered in packed snow. And it wasn't too bad. I was a bit worried that it would just be sheer ice and and all I had were the wine-soaked hokas, not really trail shoes. The descent was easy, and I just kept my stride short and steady, and I passed through the rock tunnels and passed the petroglyphs high on the canyon walls. I decided to turn around pretty early after 20 minutes because I didn't want to get in trouble with having the wrong shoes, no water, no food, my quad still sore from the marathon. Even so, it was probably a thousand feet of elevation drop to get where I turned around. Turning around and heading back up, I was forced into a run-hike cadence almost immediately. The canyon rim is about the same altitude as Denver, and the air is pretty thin. I had to step aside to let a couple mule trains pass, and as I was pushing up out of the trail, the day hikers were starting their descents and stepped aside with wide-eyed wonder to see me churning up the path towards them. They apparently thought I had run up from the bottom. You look at something like the Grand Canyon that was worn down over millions of years of patient effort by the Colorado River and plate tectonics. Man can dig holes and move dirt with tractors, but rain and melting snow can move continents with patient ablation. I thought about my life and my running and how happy I was to be that 53-year-old guy running up out of the canyon on an icy trail to the astonishment of those travelers. Maybe it's that same patient, consistent work that will allow us all to leave behind immense and beautiful works of art, each in our own way. And my advice to you today is to just keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry so much about the results. Don't worry If no one except the mule deer and the jackrabbits know and notice, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.
Sit down, dog. Stop pacing. When you look around, please sit down and stop pacing behind me with your clickety-clack nails. I'm trying to... I'm, I'm, I'm doing art here, dog. 